Well, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to continue our study in the book of Genesis this morning. And uh, if you're a guest with us and you don't already have a copy of uh, our Genesis journal, we want to make sure everybody gets one of those. You can grab one on your way out today. All that is is basically a copy of the book of Genesis that's got a blank facing page on each each alternating page so that you have the opportunity to write down maybe observations you've got, questions you've got about the text, things that God has said to you. There you go. That's what they look like. So we want to make sure everybody gets one of those. And if you're somebody who's worshiping with us from away, either at home or somewhere else, we're happy to send one of those to you too. If you're not going to be here in person, we'll send that to you. But it's just a great tool to keep track of what God may be saying. So as we come to Genesis chapter 4 this morning, verses 1 through 16, we see the continuation of life after the fall of man. When we were in Genesis 3, we saw that God gave people uh, this good opportunity to worship him and to glorify him by being obedient, and they made the choice instead to serve themselves, which is a, a decision that mankind has been making regularly ever since, but that's the first occurrence of that. They were tempted, and they made the wrong choice, and as a result, their eyes were opened. They were separated from God. There was a curse. God, as we talked about a few weeks ago, removed them uh, from the garden in order to protect them and preserve them for redemption in the long run. But now we come to Genesis chapter four and we see in some ways life goes on. In fact, if I was going to give a sort of a subtitle to this next section of our study, it would be life in the aftermath. Uh, if, if the first one was walking with God in the beginning, this would sort of be life in the aftermath of the fall. And so we see the continuation of life in the beginning of family and in the beginning of uh, vocations and in the beginning of culture and in the beginning of continued faith now that mankind knows the difference between right and wrong because they've seen it firsthand. So we come to Genesis chapter 4 and, and what we see here is the continuation of that story and we see... Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, bring offerings to God. Now, as we begin, I just sort of want you to put yourself in a mindset. Have you ever, maybe this is a good question for some of the young people that are in here. I know we got some kids in the service today and whatever. Have you ever given somebody a gift, but it was the wrong gift or was a gift they didn't appreciate or maybe they didn't appreciate it as much as you thought they would? You gave them something and you thought they would like it and they ended up not. I remember um, for me when I was in fourth grade, this is a very vivid memory. When I was in fourth grade, I was in Miss Lucas's class at Grace Christian School in Arizona. And uh, there was like the nicest, prettiest girl in my fourth grade class, in my opinion, was this girl named Kirsten Schluter. If you know her, please don't tell her I told you this story. But uh, there was this girl named Kirsten Schluter, and I just thought she was so nice, and she was friendly, and she was kind to everybody. And so I got like a kind of a crush, you know what I'm talking about? For a fourth grader, I don't know what that looks like, but I felt some sort of affection toward Kirsten Schluter, the fourth grade girl in my, in my class. And uh, so I saved up my lawn mowing money. At the time, I got a little bit of an allowance for, for mowing lawns, and I just bought her like a little gold necklace. It was no big deal, just a little gold necklace. It was in a little pink box, and I took it to her at school, just trying in my fourth grade way to express to her like, I think you're nice, or I like you. I wasn't, I wasn't asking this girl to marry me or whatever. But I spent some money on this gold necklace. I took it to school and I offered it to Kirsten. And uh, at recess, I give her the box. I'm anxious to see how she'll respond, what she's going to do in response to my gift. You know, this could be a turning point in my life, you guys, right? And uh, she opens up the box and she sees it. And then she closes the box. And in front of me and all my friends, she walks over to the dumpster and she puts it in. This is. This is a formative moment in my life, right? You guys are feeling it. 
I don't know if she didn't like gold necklaces. I don't know if she didn't like me. I don't know if she was just embarrassed that a boy had given her a gift in front of a bunch of other people. There's all kinds of things that could have gone wrong. I didn't even get the opportunity to ask any of those questions. I just felt this like deep rejection, a little bit of shame. And I will tell you that the way it pivoted in my heart was that I started sort of making fun of Kirsten Schluter, right? Like the pivot in me, rather than going, well, maybe she doesn't like necklaces or maybe she doesn't like me or maybe I embarrassed her. Maybe it wasn't the right time. Instead, what happens in me is I feel ashamed or I feel embarrassed or I feel like I've done something wrong. I feel bad about myself. And so in turn, then what I do is I lash out toward the person who I actually really liked. And I regret that, right? In Genesis chapter four, what we see is two brothers who bring offerings to God. And that's important. It's important as a starting place. These two brothers bring offerings to God. Let's look at this together. Genesis 4, 1 and following. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. So we see that Cain is a farmer, and we see that Abel is a shepherd, right? So we're seeing, you watch the way culture is developing here. We're seeing vocations come out. We're seeing different people have different jobs. They're working the land. They're working the livestock. And it says then in time that these two brothers bring an offering to God. Look in verse 3. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. I can tell you when Kirsten Schluter threw away my necklace, I was angry and my face fell. What that means is my countenance changed, right? It wasn't just something that happened in the inside of me. It was something that was very obvious to anybody who was paying attention. You could see the grief and the shame and the regret and the embarrassment just by looking at me. That's what happens to Cain here. But before we even talk about Cain's response, which tends to be the place people camp here, let's talk a little bit about these two brothers who both bring an offering. It's interesting that God looks upon Abel's offering with favor and he accepts it. And he looks upon Cain's offering without favor and rejects it, right? They both bring offerings, but God looks upon Abel's and approves it. And he does not do it with Cain. Now, there are lots of, uh, lots of theories and lots of conjecture about why it is that God approves of Abel's offering and not of Cain's. There are lots of theories that have been made. People will point in this text to the fact that Abel brings the, the first and the fat portions while it says that Cain brings some in time. But in reality, there are no sacrificial laws laid out yet. God had not established for his people that he wanted animal sacrifices. That's not given to us in the text. In fact, there's nothing in chapters 1 through 3 that says anything with regard to direction for God's people as to you should bring me a sacrifice and it should look like X. This is when you should bring it. This is what it should be like. Bring me the first and the fat or any of that. There's, there's no instruction. What we just see are two people who in their understanding of God bring him what they have produced. A farmer who brings fruits and vegetables and a shepherd who brings the first and the fat of his flock, right? These are two people who approach God. Now, it's interesting that in Hebrews 11.4, which we studied a few years ago, it gives us a little more insight. And all, always, when we read the Bible, we want to read it uh, in totality, right? We don't just want to look at one particular chapter or one particular verse or one particular book. We want to look at the way the Bible speaks about itself. So Hebrews 11.4 gives us a little bit of insight into what happens here. It says in Hebrews 11.4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, 
through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. This is interesting. It says that Abel's sacrifice was accepted because he brought it in faith. Well, what kind of faith are we talking about? Because they both had faith, right? They both believed in God. You don't bring an offering to a God you don't believe in. So there's some kind of faith on Cain's part. You don't bring him something if you don't have some kind of faith. You don't worship him. What we see is worship. So there's faith in both parts. But Abel's faith God sees as acceptable and Cain's faith he doesn't. Tim Keller has suggested that perhaps what's happening here is that when people bring offerings to God, they really only bring offerings to God for two different reasons. There are two reasons people bring offerings to God. One of them is in, is in trusting gratitude or trusting response. It's possible that Abel understood the promise of God to send a deliverer, just like we talked about two weeks ago. That Abel understood that God had promised to send a deliverer to crush the head of the serpent. And in trusting response to God's future promise and God's future deliverance, that Abel brought his first and fat portions in trusting response to what God had given him. But Tim Keller will say not only do people bring offerings in response to what God has already given, their salvation, the grace of God, the love of God, we bring offerings in response to what God has done. The other time we bring offerings is in order to obtain something from him, right? There are two reasons to bring an offering to God. We come to him in response to what he has done, or sometimes we bring an offering to God in anxious desire, right? Anxious desire. Maybe you show up at church because you want God to answer your prayers. Maybe you put money in the offering plate because you want other people to know how, how, uh, you know, generous you are or whatever. Maybe you, maybe you do the things you do or you offer up your time and your talents and your gifts and your money and all those things to God, not in faithful, trusting response to what he's already given you and the way he's already blessed you, but maybe you're giving to God because you're hoping that he'll do what you tell him in the future, or you're hoping that it will gain you some sort of favor in God's sight. You see the difference between the two? Those are the two reasons we bring So when it says in in Hebrews that Abel was faithful, it's not that Cain didn't have some sort of faith, but maybe that he didn't have the kind of faith that was in response to who God is, but rather he had the kind of faith that said, I believe God is there, and I believe that if I do something for him, he'll do something for me. What we do know, whether or not that theory is correct or any of the other theories, what we do know is that God in his sovereignty looked upon Abel's sacrifice with favor, and upon Cain's sacrifice, he did not find that acceptable. So there's also a piece of this that we have to look at and recognize that God rejects his offering, and some of those reasons, it's enough for us just for those reasons to be God's, right? That we, all of us, are finite in our understanding. We're human beings. We can comprehend some things. We can understand some things. But we certainly will never fully comprehend the vastness of who God is, right? We'll never fully comprehend his love. We'll never fully comprehend his ways. We'll never fully comprehend who he he is. So regardless of why Cain's uh, sacrifice was dismissed by God or was looked upon with disdain, what we know is that that's God's choice. He has his reasons. Maybe someday he'll tell us. But what we need to see in this is that there are all kinds of places in which you and I are also limited by how much we know about God. There are going to be times where we're going to approach God thinking that we understand him or thinking that we understand his word or thinking that we understand his expectation and we're going to find out that we got it wrong. But we don't like to get it wrong, right? We don't like to get it wrong. We are people who don't like to get it wrong. So when God says to Abel, I accept your sacrifice, and to Cain, I reject your sacrifice, 
Look at what happens to Cain's heart. It says in verses 4 and 5, The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Why is Cain angry? Why does his countenance fall? Why does his face fall? Because he was wrong. Because whatever he was thinking and bringing the vegetables or whatever was happening in his heart, whatever was going on in his motivation was not correct and God did not approve of it. Well, it shouldn't be surprising to us that a human being, finite in his understanding, finite even in knowing who God is at the beginning of creation, but even for us today, it shouldn't be surprising to us that there are going to be times where God surprises us, where we learn things about God and we learn things about God sometimes by taking risks, by making offerings, right? And sometimes when we make those offerings, we make them for the wrong reasons or we make them in the wrong way or we learn things about God and when God corrects us and when God says, that's not what I wanted or that's not the heart I was looking for. I appreciate the vegetables, but your heart's in the wrong place. When God corrects our thinking, the point for us in Genesis 4 is that when we learn something new about God, even in our failure, we have to have the kind of attitude that's willing to go, what do you know? I did it wrong. I blew it. I made a mistake. I've learned something new about God, right? I've learned something new about God. It's important to note in this text that while God rejects Cain's offering, he does not reject Cain, right? There is no place in this text where Cain is rejected. It's just his worship that's rejected. It's just his offering that's rejected. That's important to to distinguish. That even when we make mistakes, even when we misunderstand who God is or what he has said or his expectation for us, we don't lose favor with God. We just have to be uh, of the right heart and attitude to be able to learn from that failure, right? A person learns God's will and character by taking risks and making offerings. There's no problem with getting things wrong. The problem is how we respond to getting it wrong or making mistakes. This could have been an opportunity for Cain to have learned something new about God. They both bring their offerings, right? The shepherd and the farmer, they both bring their offerings and God goes, that's what I was looking for. That's not what I'm looking for. And I actually don't think he's talking about the offerings at all because I would say this morning, That if you're a dentist or you're a school teacher or you work at the grocery store or you're an auto mechanic or you're a high school student or you're a second grader or whatever, that no matter what you bring, you should bring an offering to God out of what he's given you. Whatever your vocation, whatever your role, we want to be offering to God out of the overflow of what he's given to us. In faithful response, not in anxious desire. I don't think that God goes, I don't want vegetables. I think he looks at Cain's heart and he says, your heart's not in it for the right reasons, right? But when that happens and when God says your heart's not in the wrong reason, guess what? Don't get angry. Don't feel sad. Don't let your countenance fall. Instead go, hey, God just taught me something about what he wants. God just taught me something about who he is. God just corrected my understanding. He's helping me to know what to bring or better yet, how to bring it next time around. God is shaping him. But Cain misses that. You see, the problem for us and for Cain is we want to be right. We want to get what we think we've paid for. We want God to respond the way we think he ought to respond. We want to get what we think we deserve. Not only do we want to be right, not only do we want God to respond the way we tell him to, we want to feel like we know more than other people, right? So to stand next to Abel and have him get it right, the younger brother, and for us to get it wrong, that feels bad. I want to feel like I know more than the guy next to me. I don't want God to look on his sacrifice. And when we start to feel like there are others who know more than us, we're not getting what we think we deserve. God's not responding the way we want him to. When we are recognizing that we've got it wrong in a public way, 
there's a thing that turns in us. You see, we, we, we want to believe that we understand God. We want to believe that we know him entirely, that everything there is to know, we can put in a nicely little packaged box, that we can give our finely worded and crafted theological statements and we can reduce God to what we understand. But God's bigger than that. And you and I increasingly just have to be comfortable to go, there are some things I can know about God, but I'll always be learning about God. And sometimes the way I'm going to learn is that when I come to him, he's going to go, that's not the heart I was looking for. That's not the approach I was looking for. And we'll either in that moment see our pride rear up, become angry, watch our countenance fall, or we'll go, thanks God for teaching me something about you. I want to be a learner. I want to be somebody who pays attention. The problem is that when we want to be right, when we feel like we can put God in a box, what that creates is an unteachable, jealous, angry, entitled, arrogant worshiper. Okay, so you check this out. It creates an angry and entitled worshiper. We're not talking about people who don't know anything about God. Again, Cain and Abel both bring a sacrifice. These are people who know God. Cain talks with God. No, what we've got here is a murderous worshiper because he can't just admit that he got it wrong. He can't just admit that maybe there were things about God he didn't know or things he didn't understand at the time. He can't just receive correction from God and go, give me another shot, I'll come back again. So God warns him. It says this, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, verse five, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Look at this warning, it's so cool. God says in verse six, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen, Right? I want you to hear again, this isn't a rebuke. This is God asking him a question. And we know from earlier studies that anytime God asks a question, he's not asking a question because he wants to know the answer. Every time God asks a question, right, he's always asking it so the person can learn the answer. So he says to Cain, why are you looking so sad? Why are you so angry? If you do well, right, if you can hear my correction and respond to it by trusting in me, then you're going to be fine. Next time around, both sacrifices, acceptable before God. You've learned something new about me. But if you continue on the path you're in, this is how God describes it. The Lord said, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. He describes sin like a, like a prowling animal, like a beast that wants to devour. He says, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. He warns Cain. He says, Cain, buddy, you've got a choice here to humbly and lovingly accept my correction and do better next time. And everything's good because I have not rejected you, Cain. I just rejected your sacrifice. So you've got an opportunity to learn or you can become embittered. You can become angry. That sin that's crouching at your door will devour you. But you have the opportunity. You're at a, you're at a crossroads. You could control it. But what we have in Cain at this point is an unteachable, jealous, angry, entitled, arrogant worshiper. Failure to trust God leads to failure to respect our brother. And watch the way this goes. God has corrected Cain, and Cain doesn't like that correction. Cain doesn't want to trust God in that correction. But here's the thing. Cain can't prove God wrong, right? He can't argue with God, and he certainly can't punish God, right? So in this scenario, God has just said, hey, I don't like that sacrifice. That's not who I am. I want it to be different, right? Now, Cain's frustrated and embarrassed. He's got this entitlement for what he thinks he deserves, 
but he can't put it in God's face and he can't punish God for that, right? Because God is right and he's wrong. He knows that. In those moments where we get it wrong, in those moments where we make mistakes, where we've misunderstood God or we've misunderstood his expectation for us or we've misunderstood his word, we can't take our frustration out on God because he's true and perfect and holy. So where does our frustration go? Our frustration goes to our peers. It goes to our fellow man. Failure to trust God leads to failure to respect our brother. Rather than change my ways, and since I can't punish God, I will take out my anger or embarrassment or frustration on others. Psalm chapter 30, verse 20, the psalmist talks about it. It says, those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Proverbs 29.10 says, Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. 1 John chapter 3, here's another text that talks about Cain and Abel. 1 John chapter 3 verse 11 says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Right? What's, what's Cain trying to do? Well, he can't punish God. He can't get back at God. He can't prove God's wrong. He can't go, no, actually, this sacrifice is good enough. All he can do is take out the competition. All he can do is remove the, con- the contrast, right? Just remove that. So Cain kills his brother. Let's go back to the text, Genesis chapter 4. God gave him this loving warning and said, Cain, sin's going to get you, man. You, you haven't sinned yet. By the way, the wrong sacrifice was not a sin. The wrong sacrifice was not a sin. It was a misunderstanding. The sin that's crouching at his door is what he does in response to his mistake. Response to his being a learner. It says here, verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and Abel killed him. He takes out his frustration across, across ways to his brother. It's interesting that God said to him that sin's desire is for you but you must rule it. I think there's this ongoing battle within all of us, which is the desire of sin and the need for ruling over that sin. By the way, uh, it's clear in this text and in many that you and I are not capable of ruling over sin on our own. That the only way in which we rule over sin. So sin's desire is after us. It's crouching at our door. It wants to take hold of us. The pride and the greed and the jealousy and the envy and the embitterment and all those things are crouching at our door. Whenever we get something wrong, it's crouching there and it wants to eat us. And God says you have to rule over it. Well, part of what Genesis is going to show us again and again and again and again is that we can't do it, right? That they aren't capable of doing it. But you and I are capable of ruling over sin in our lives, not by our own strength, not by pulling us, ourselves up by our bootstraps, not by trying harder or being the little engine that could. Because we live post the death and resurrection of Christ, we have power over sin and death, not in and of ourselves, but in the, the shed blood of Christ on our behalf. Right? So there is a sense in which this battle is always happening internally. There's always a battle raging between sin that wants to control our lives and the rule of Christ. But sometimes that internal battle, you know what happens? It leaks out into our relationships with other people. Look at any conflict you want. Look at any strife you want. Look at any place where you see brothers embattled, right? Why is that happening? Because the internal struggle leaks out into the external struggle, right? Desire and rule is important. Leaks into a struggle with other people. So God had warned Cain Now he confronts Cain. Look at verse 9. 
Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Once again, God doesn't ask a question because he wants to know something. He asks a question because he's giving Cain an opportunity to confess and to repent. Just like in Genesis 3. Remember that? God says to Adam and Eve, where are you? What have you done, right? Why is he asked the questions? He knows the answers. He's trying to get them to realize the answers. God says to Cain, where's your brother? And Cain says, look at verse, uh, look at verse 10. Well, excuse me, look at verse 9. He said, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? Two different little statements here. The first one, he says, I do not know. Well, that's just a flat-out lie, right? Because Cain is the one who killed Abel and hid his body. So if anybody knows where Abel is, Cain knows. I want you to see the way in which a lack of trust in God, a rejection of God's correction, it turns in time into a stubbornness, right? It turns to a place where your conscience becomes deadened through persistent refusal to listen to God or to take correction. There is a point where you can look at the God of the universe when he says, where's your brother? And you can say, I don't know. And it's a bold-faced lie. But it's because you've refused to listen to God. You've shut him out. That same temptation is in us where our conscience has become deadened. I remember one time when uh, my kids were growing up, my son Hank was a little guy, like maybe one and a half, two years old, and he was in the middle of potty training deal, you know, and any of you parents who've gone through all that, Hank will be thrilled, I'm telling this story, by the way, but uh, any of you who've gone through that, like potty training season, you know uh, that when you're training a kid, there are times where they make a mistake, right? They have an accident, and uh, if you're a parent and you're potty training a kid who has an accident, you know it, because the, the, the scent in the house betrays the mistake. You know what I'm saying? So one day I've got this little guy, Hank, and I can tell that he's had an accident. I can tell that he's uh, not called me to go to the bathroom. And so I come over to Hank and I said, Hank, did you have an accident? And he goes, no. And I was like, really? Like, cause it kind of smells in our house. Like you maybe didn't go to the bathroom like you should have. No dad, I did not. And I was like, okay, well, let me, let me check, you know, this is gross, but I, you know, there's a thing, you just do the kind of the check thing. And I was like, um, what's this? And he goes, Jack pooped my pants. <laughs> he pointed at his brother. And I was like, I kind of hope that's true just cause I don't, I can't believe he pulled that off. It's amazing. Right. You know, like I sort of hope that your older brother chased you down and pooped your pants. I really hope that's the case. Obviously that is not what happened, but what was happening in the heart of my one and a half year old? My one and a half year old denied what was very obvious because he didn't want to take the correction. He didn't want to be confronted on his own mistakes. This is so much like us all the way through our lives that we want to point away and go, no, I I don't know. I don't know where my brother is. But he follows it up with another statement. He says, I don't know. And then he says, am I my brother's keeper? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad he asked it. It's important for us to think, think it through. Is he his brother's keeper? Well, the answer to that question is yes, he absolutely is his brother's keeper. That we were created for community, that we were created for family. If you have any question this morning about whether or not you are your brother's keeper, your sister's keeper, let me set it to rest. Mark chapter 12, verse 29, this is Jesus speaking. He says, the most important of of the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Do you think Jesus wondered whether or not you and I are our brother's keepers? He did not. He stated it emphatically. In fact, he makes caring for our neighbor equal with loving God. Equal with loving God. Not only that, we can look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 and following. It says this, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Romans 12 verse 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor, right? Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And and the implication of his question is, no, I'm just accountable for myself. I'm only accountable for what I do. Not so, right? We certainly are called to care for our neighbor, to care for other people. What's Cain doing? He's trying to point away from himself again. He's trying to shirk responsibility. His conscience is deadened because he's failed to trust God. For you and I, keeping our brother should mean care and concern and trust and admiration, mutual learning, joy, fellowship, community. But many times when we're embarrassed or when we've had to take correction or when we're in the process of recognizing that we may have been wrong about something that we believed or something that we were taught or when we're in that moment of feeling like maybe God is bigger than the box we put him in. What happens is we can't take that frustration out on God, so we start to take it out on one another. And then we start to keep our brothers, but not through care and concern and trust and admiration. We keep our brothers and sisters in a distortion of sin through control and disregard and shame and cruelty and unkindness. Or in Cain's case, murder. He kept his brother. He killed him, right? Well, how did that happen? How did we get to this? All of this could have been avoided. And here's the point today. All of this could have been avoided if Cain had the humility to go, I messed up. I learned something new about God. I'm going to bring a different kind of a sacrifice next time. And so can we. But in those moments where we want to insist that we've got it right, we want to insist that we've paid enough into the till that God should give us something back. In those moments where we want to dictate what God likes and what God doesn't, when we want to pretend like we know everything there is to know about God, that we can't be wrong and we certainly know more than the guy next to us. In those moments where we want to maintain that facade, our only option, because we can't lash out at him, is to lash out at each other. Cain murders his brother. God says, what have you done? And so there is then a consequence. There's a consequence. He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Well, what's happening here? Once again, Cain is questioning God's judgment. Once again, God is looking at God, Cain is looking at God and saying, I don't think you've thought this through. My sacrifice was fine and the consequence now that you've given me, I can't bear. Cain understands both the temporal consequence with his vocation. He understands the spiritual consequence in feeling a further distance from God. He understands the emotional consequence in the loneliness and isolation and shame and restlessness. He also understands the relational consequence. Because when you're the kind of person that lashes out at other people, pretty soon your perception is that everyone else is as murderous and conniving as you are. He says, if I, if I go out like this, people are going to try and kill me. Guess what? Nobody thought of that before, Cain, right? You're the originator of that plan. But he says, it's more than I can bear. It's interesting how often, even in our consequences, we see ourselves as deserving a lesser punishment. Listen, Abel's not at fault here, and God is not at fault here. Cain is the one who, after the warning of God, God said, Cain, buddy, this can go two ways, man. You can listen to me and trust me and change and everything will be fine. Or sin's going to eat you up, man, and it's going to get rough. 
And Cain disregards God and does what he wants to do. And as a result, there's a consequence. But I want you to see this as we close. Cain says, this is more than I can bear. And look at God's response. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I want you to see here that, that he rejected God's counsel and as a result, he moves further away. We're going to see that in the course of our Genesis study as well. The people move further and further east of Eden, right? I know that's a sort of a, a, like a, a book title, whatever. There's probably a movie. It doesn't matter. The idea here is that people are moving further and further away from that communion with God and, and Cain's uh, uh, one more step in distance. But here's what I want you to see that God continues to care for Cain. I want you to hear this morning that God absolutely cares for the innocent. He absolutely cares for the innocent. But his care for the innocent is only matched by his compassion for the guilty. That's good news for us, right? It's good news for us. Does God care about the shed blood of Abel? He absolutely does. But does God care about the life and existence of Cain who rejected him? You bet he does. The care of God for the innocent is matched only by his care and compassion for the guilty. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. Hebrews 12, 24. One last place where it talks about Cain and Abel. It says, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In a passage that's talking about what we have access to, it says we have access to Jesus and his sprinkled blood, his sprinkled blood, which it says speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that, what does that mean? Well, here's where we finish this morning. Here's where we finish. The blood of Abel cried out from the ground to God. And you know what it said? You know what it said from the ground? It cried out and it spoke of guilt and shame and pride and selfishness and sin, the rejection of God's correction. But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word because the blood of Jesus speaks of mercy for sinners, forgiveness for those who've walked away, redemption for those who have failed, selflessness, grace for those who failed to take the correction of God, right? The blood of Jesus is where this story is pointing. The blood of Abel speaks of guilt, but the blood of Christ speaks to us of grace. And so this morning, the message as we, as we finish in this text is not, you know, why did God choose Cain's sacrifice and not Abel's? We could speculate about that. The thing we can't speculate here is that God came to Cain and said, you didn't understand me. You didn't understand what I wanted. You misunderstood, but you can get it right next time. And rather than him saying, I got room to grow. There are obviously things about God and worship and what he expects that I didn't understand. I'll get it right next time. Instead, his heart is hardened. And because he can't lash out at God, he lashes out at his fellow man. The solution to what we see in Genesis 4 is this. Be teachable. Be humble. Be willing to say there are things about God I'm going to learn today and tomorrow and the next day. There are things that I've come to believe about the Bible that may not be accurate. Things I've been told that may not actually be true. They may be based on things that were false, right? And I have to be a learner. I have to grow. I have to have room to be corrected without feeling like I got to keep God in my tiny box. And if I can look to God and say, 
I blew it, but I'll get it right next time, then we have the ability to grow in our relationship with him rather than moving further away from him and creating hardship and division with one another. It's just humility and a willingness to say there are some things about God and his expectation that I still have to learn today and tomorrow and the next day. And in that humble response, we build relationship with God. It grows in our understanding of him and we build relationship with our fellow man because in humble solidarity, we're all on the path together. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us a a clear heart to look at what we see in in the story of Cain and Abel. These two worshipers who brought you an offering and one who came and his offering was acceptable and one whose wasn't. And there was no penalty for, for, for bringing a sacrifice that was unacceptable that was just an encouragement to change, to do it different. And yet because of his own hardness of heart, because of his own pride, he closes down, he doesn't hear your warning and he turns away. God, may we not be those kinds of people. May we be humble, may we be learners, may we be the kind of people who are willing to admit when we get it wrong so that we can move forward in our knowledge of you, our relationship with you, and in peace with our fellow man. And we pray that in Christ's name, amen.